How you guys doing? Good morning. My name is Sam. I'm excited to be speaking with you this morning. I spoke back with you guys, I believe, at the end of June, um, and then fleed the building as fast as possible in case it didn't go well. They invited me back, you know, so here I am again. What's the worst that could happen? They don't invite me back again if this is a sophomore slump. So just let you guys know that that's what's going on. But my name's Sam. I've been part of E3 for about six years, and my wife, Amber, and my four children go here as well. We absolutely love this church. We love it for the worship experience that we get. We love it for the friendships that we have. And as my kids would say, we love it for the hot chocolate we can obtain in the foyer. It's uh, very important for that part. And I will say this church is not perfect. You guys, you guys know that. But I have experienced in my life so much healing here. When I came here, I was a broken, broken person. And the staff here and all the friendships that have been loving and supporting, really revitalized and restarted my life in a lot of ways. And I'm so thankful for that. And from one e 3 or to another, please love and support this church deeply. It's a wonderful place to worship. Are there any music lovers today? That's kind of an E3 thing, right? That's what we do. We like music. I love music, all types. Uh, anything that makes the synapses in my brain fire uh, that I can listen to that keeps me interested, I'm listening to it. And I have a confession to make. I love jazz. I hate to say it. I know it's an old fogey thing to say, but I absolutely love jazz. I love listening to it. I love uh, hearing all the complexity that's going on, uh, everything that just keeps my brain focused on what's happening. Always something different's coming from one side or the other, tempo changes, all kinds of stuff. Jazz is great. Um, that was not my theme song to walk in though it kind of coincided with that time. That was Charlie Mingus, Charles Mingus. I don't know if you guys know him. He's a bass player, famous guy, has done stuff for centuries, um, was a band leader of two really big jazz groups that he led. And that song is probably one of his more famous songs. It's called Freedom. It's the name of that song. And that was just one part, the middle section. There are three tempo changes in that song, simply because Charlie thought it would be fun to mess everybody up. And uh, that's what he did. And that's a, it's a great song if you listen to the whole thing at some point. Um, I'll come back to that song in a little bit, but let's press on to today's task. We're in the middle of a series called God Part One, God Is As God Does. And we're really looking at the actions we see in the story of God. Not only what God says, but what he does. You know, if you've been adulting for very long, one of the tried and true things you have to learn as an adult is to not... Watch what people, or listen to what people say, but watch what people do, right? I've learned that lesson a couple of dozen times at this point. It's a reoccurring lesson that we have to learn uh, in life. And so God is happy to take us up on that challenge. He's like, I'm a God of action. I'm in the middle of things. And Lori specifically talked about that two weeks ago, and then Mike did a great job talking about the, the name of God last week and how that dovetails into all this. So my task today is to talk to you a bit more about Moses. Specifically, I'm going to dive back into that same passage from the last week about God sending Moses to rescue the Hebrews from Egypt. And that's what uh, was read today. So Moses, pretty famous guy. Everybody knows who Moses is, right? I grew up hearing about Moses in Sunday school. But the true teacher about Moses in our culture today is a 1956 movie that you watch on Easter. What's the name of it? The Ten Commandments, right? Everybody watches that. I used to get my Easter basket, 
And our parents would plop us down in front of the Ten Commandments for a very, very long afternoon of movie watching. <laughs> so everything I knew was from that movie. It's kind of like the Avengers Endgame of its time. It was a blockbuster movie. Everybody, everybody watched it. And so we all think Moses looked like this guy because of that movie. Who was that? Charlton Heston, right? I mean, as if things weren't bad enough, he has a horrible name to pronounce. And so we all stumble with his name, right? But that was Moses. That's who he was. So according to the Bible of Cecil B. DeMille, who was the director, and Charleston Heston, Moses was this polished, confident, self-assured, good-looking guy with a booming voice. If y'all watch the movie, he speaks like he's on a, a theater stage the entire time. No matter what he's doing, the man has got a loud voice. The whole time. And he never doubts himself when he's standing in front of the leader of the free world at the time, right? Um, in front of Ramsey's there. So he never doubts, totally polished, totally on his game. And that's how we like our heroes, right? Like they know what they're doing. That's how we like the people that are in charge. We don't want to feel like they're not in charge. And that makes its way into uh, the assurance and confidence factor goes into our workplaces, Right? While we want to look like we're on top of things, we don't want to look like we're making mistakes or don't know what we're doing. And that's why we gravitate toward things like titles of importance. It's why we value power. It's why we grasp for money. It's why we build tall buildings and smack our names on the side of it, right? So we can counteract the gnawing insecurity that we might not have everything together. And that's why the first question at cocktail parties is, what do you do? not what brings you joy, which is probably the more important question. We live in a world of fake it till you make it. Fake it till you make it. But by doing our best Charlton Heston interpretation, impersonations, we've created an interesting little cultural phenomenon for ourselves. How many of you guys have ever heard of imposter syndrome? Have you ever heard of that? It came out about the 1970s. It's part of a sociological business study that talks about the idea that we feel like imposters in anything that we do. When you boil it down, imposter syndrome is just a fancy word for feeling that people are going to figure out that you don't know what you're talking about, <laughs> right? That somehow, unbeknownst to everyone around you, you've managed to just sneak on in just under the, under the bar into a situation that you're unqualified for, that you're a fraud waiting to be exposed, and it's only just a matter of time. And so here is an example of the assumption of imposter syndrome is that you know very little and that everybody else knows a whole lot more than you and eventually they're going to figure that out. When the true reality is you know plenty and the knowledge that other people have around you is limited and they really don't care how much you know or not, but we live under the assumption that we don't know enough and we're not impressive to people. So even though we have a buzzword about what describes that feeling, that's not really a new concept, is it? Humans have felt that way forever. We always feel like we don't know what we're doing, even if we're not willing to admit it. I feel that way every day as a husband, as a father, as a worker, all those things. Imposter experts now say they've come up with kind of a clinical thing that says if you struggle from imposter syndrome, that there may be symptoms, may be accompanied by symptoms, symptoms of anxiety or stress or depression. Well, 
Duh. <laughs> that's, like, that's like everybody that's an adult, right? The only thing that will get you up quicker in the morning than a strong cup of coffee is a little stress and anxiety. Can you feel me? I mean, that's what gets me up in the morning sometimes, right? So back to the story of Moses. So when God calls Moses to deliver the Hebrews from the Egyptians, he's riddled with imposter syndrome. I don't know that this is the thing for me, God. I don't know that this is really something that I'm qualified to do. And so there's a little bit of difference, though. The difference with Moses is that unlike most people who really don't have that much to hide, you know, we may feel that way, but everybody's pretty, on the, pretty much on the up and up. Moses actually had something to hide. So in chapter 2, we learn that Moses is basically Richard Kimball from The Fugitive. <laughs> Dude is hiding and on the run, right? Because what happens? He ends up killing an Egyptian who is beating a Hebrew slave. Moses looks one way, then he looks the other, and then he goes straight up Tony Soprano on the guy. And he ends up burying him in the sand, thinking that nobody's seen what he's done. But that's not the case at all. In chapter 2, verse 14, it hilariously says, in this deadpan way, then Moses panicked. Word's gotten out. People know about this. So all of a sudden, Moses now knows that he's, he's caught, you know, a little slight understatement there. And so he flees, he leaves, he goes to a place called Midian. He ends up in Midian, he marries into a family business where he's on the bottom rung of the corporate ladder with his family. He's a shepherd. No titles, no invitations to a board, no bonus checks, no community awards for distinguished leadership for this guy. Moses is just a felon waiting for things to blow over in Egypt. Moses is no Charlton Heston. We'll put it that way. He's no Charlton Heston. But that's good. And here's why. What most people don't realize is that most of the heroes in the Bible are sketchy at best. I don't know if you've noticed this. They're pretty sketch all around. In fact, the Bible goes out of its way not to tell you why someone is qualified for a position, but to tell you why they're a horrible choice for management in the kingdom of God. Why they shouldn't be applying for this job at all, right? Here's some examples. Jacob, total con man. I don't know if you've read the story of Jacob. That guy was about as deceptive as you can get. Joseph, total braggart. That's why he landed in the pit. He made his brothers so angry that they threw him in the pit. Abraham lies constantly to stay out of trouble at the expense of other people in his life, including his family. David, everybody knows about David. He's a murderer. He's an adulterer, right? This is the best one, though. When God asks Isaiah to speak on his behalf, Isaiah says that he's too foul-mouthed to be used of God. He has unclean lips. So just think of the prophet Isaiah as the Old Testament version of Dave Chappelle. That's where you are right there. And the Bible just lays all this out without any embarrassment, without any, any shame at all. Now, the Bible does this for two reasons, okay? So first, God wants you to know that your qualifications are not near as important to him as his desire to love you and send you or call you to do something. He's not picking you because your resume is top shelf. He's picking you because he loves you. And he's inviting you into his work in the world. Secondly, 
by airing everybody's dirty laundry, God is telling us what's important to him. What's important to him. I heard an old Episcopal priest, a guy named Malcolm Smith, say one time, the gospel isn't as much about forgiveness as much as it is about change. About change. The hope to change from once you, who you once were into who you can become. So God loves and forgives because that's who he is. But God also loves and forgives so that you can feel safe and loved enough to change into the person that he desires for you to be. And at least for me, that, that helps a good bit as far as being more real with people. Because I'm just as flawed as all the guys in the Bible. You may be too. And that gives me a little bit of encouragement to be real with that. Thank God for that, right? I tell you what, that idea, it may not release the pressure for you to perform as a father or a husband or a mother or a wife or a coworker or a boss or whatever, but it sure helps you be comfortable where you are on the road to becoming more. And that's pretty awesome. I lean into this reality all the time. I've said versions of this stuff all this week because I've had just the worst. On a scale of 1 to 10, this week's been a 2. Absolute flunked every test in every area this week. So it's a good week to, to do this, uh, this topic. At work, I'm quick to tell people I work with, hey, I'm not on top of my game today. I've got some drama that's going on that's somewhat out of my control that emotionally and mentally is draining me. I'm going to be distracted. I probably won't be on my game. Call me out on it if you see me doing that. Just go ahead and tell them up front. Tell them what's going on. With my kind-hearted wife, I tell Amber, I'm so sorry I'm not giving you the attention that you need. I've got some ideas to help us reconnect, but I want to hear what you have to say. I want to hear your input. Where can I improve? Where can I be a better husband for you to support you in what you're going through? And she does the same thing for me. Or when my sweet 10-year-old daughter tells me that I'm the greatest dad ever, which I appreciate, but we all know that's not the case, right? But it's nice to hear. That's why 10-year-old little girls exist, to tell their dads that they're the greatest ever. But what I tell her is, babe, some days you'll think that I'm a great dad and you'll love everything I do. Some days you'll think I'm a terrible dad and you'll be angry at me because of what I do. But either way, know that I love you and you're getting my best as a father at any given moment. I'm always trying my best to be the father that I need to be. And that's not an excuse. What is that? It's reality. It's real. It's where we are. It's how we live. Perspective always helps things. So let me shift gears a little bit here, okay? Remember that Charlie Mingus song I played for you in the beginning, the little short clip, right? Remember how complex it sounded. There's a lot going on, kind of this cacophony of, of noise and instruments coming in left and right all over the place. Lots of fun. But it's this bombastic, beautiful chaos, right? <laughs> it's what makes it a fun song. Now I want to play you another song. It's called Pyramid Song by the band Radiohead. Who's heard of Radiohead? Okay, that's good. They were just inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. So Tom York, who wrote the song, says that he got this idea for this song from Charlie Mingus's Freedom. So you, and when you hear it, you'll be like, what? Because it doesn't really sound like that's the case. But I want to have you listen to it for a second and hear how complicated it sounds 
And then we're going to kind of take it apart a little bit. And I'm going to show you how simple the rhythm underneath really, really is. And it's really not that simple at all. Go ahead. pretty simple. You know what else is in 4-4? The Rolling Stones Satisfaction. That one's pretty simple. How about A Hard Day's Night by the Beatles? 4-4. It's actually a very, very simple song in simple 4-4 time. Like every other rock song and every other country song that you hear on the radio. Sadly, it's not any more complicated than a Florida Georgia Line song. And that's inappropriate to even say that out loud with those two in the same. But you get the idea. But it sure sounds more difficult, right? It sounds mysterious and kind of majestic and unknown and everything, and it tricks us into thinking it's something different than it really is. But it's not. You know how many chords are in that song? Five. That's it. Five chords repeating the simplest of time signatures that you hear every day. And so following God is the same way. We unnecessarily complicate it. We turn it into Charlie Mingus or the Pyramid Song, when we do better to turn it into the Rolling Stones, something like that. <laughs> Much more simple. And so answering the call of God, doing what God calls us to do, can be real simple too. And so Moses gives us a roadmap of that in this passage that was read earlier. And once again, it's actually really simple. It's just three basic ideas. I'm going to share those with you now. So the first, Moses was actually paying attention. Moses was actually paying attention to what was going on around him. In verse 2 of chapter 3, the Bible says a two-word sentence about Moses. It says, he looked. That's it. He looked. And then verse 4 says, God saw that Moses stopped to look. <laughs> now, what does that tell you? God was looking for someone who would pay attention. And God's response and call of Moses was directly related to his ability to see what God was doing around him. Now, here's a crazy idea. Just think about this with me for just a second. What if God had tried to get the attention of others before Moses? What if God had tried to get the attention of others before Moses? What if Moses was God's second choice? Because the first person wasn't aware of what was going on around them. What if Moses was God's 10th choice? What if God, God had been trying for a long time and, and Moses was God's 100th choice? 
God chose all of them, but maybe only one was aware enough to look. First step in answering the call of God is to simply pay attention. Look at what's beyond you, what's going on in you, to see what's going on around you. First step. The second step is to understand that Moses was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. Now, that's an important occupation in the Bible. We've already mentioned that because it was lowly, but it was considered a character-driven job, a character-driven job. So listen to this passage from the Jewish commentary on Exodus about Moses. When Moses was tending his father's flock, a young sheep escaped from him. He pursued it for a long time, finally catching up with the sheep as it drank from a pool of water. Moses waited until it finished drinking and said, I did not know that you ran away because you were thirsty. That's a tremendous amount of understanding right there, right? You must be weary. Such empathy, right? So he lifted the young animal up onto his shoulders, carried it back to the flock. And when God saw how merciful he was with the sheep, he knew that Moses would be kind to Israel. Because the Midrash states, when God wishes to test people's character, he looks at the way they tend sheep. When God chooses to test people's character, he looks at the way they tend sheep. God honors people who are willing to do the small things well. In a world of entitled people who think that they're above the menial and the unexciting, God loves the humble. The Bible repeats this theme about shepherds over and over. Before David was a king, what was David? He was a shepherd. Psalm 23, the first line says, the Lord is my Right. And Jesus says in the Gospels, he says, I am the good shepherd. That's right. Number three and last, Moses was okay with the unknown. It's hard not to read the story of Moses without knowing how it ends. After all, we've seen the movie. Some of us have maybe read the book, but we've definitely all seen the movie. So we know what happens in the story of Moses, and we read that into the story. And we say, well, of course Moses followed God because everything worked out okay. But this was real time for Moses. It was happening in that moment. He didn't know how things were going to go. He didn't know how things would end. He had absolutely no idea. One of my favorite parts of this exchange is in chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, where Moses basically says to God, you know, God, what, what if you're wrong? <laughs> God, what if you're wrong? You know, let's flesh this out a little bit more before I go back to the place where I killed somebody. Can we do that? Can we spend a little more time talking? That's amazing, right? Moses interviews God, not the other way around. I want you to do something. Well, tell me why I should do that for you. <laughs> That's kind of Moses' approach. Why? Because of that self-preservation, that imposter syndrome. I'm not qualified to do this, and I don't think it's going to end well for me, so I really need a good reason. I need you to tell me why I should do it, right? So we didn't have the luxury of hindsight in that case. Here's the cool thing. God doesn't become indignant or scoff at Moses' questions at all in the passage. It doesn't threaten him to be questioned at all. He answers his question seriously. And then as Moses begins to say, hey, well, you know, I don't speak that well. Can I take my brother or can I do this, that, or the other? God's flexible with how this plays out, how the plan works. And he invites Moses into that cooperatively. 
Now, God doesn't laugh at Moses' weaknesses or his insecurities. And because of that, Moses feels safe and he chooses to do what God has asked him to do. Here's the deal. You don't have to do the fancy jazz version (laughs) of following God. You don't have to do the pyramid song version where it's kind of weird and you don't know. You don't have to do that either. You can do the straight up rock and roll version. You can do the ACDC version of this. You really can. You can. Simple. Consistent. That's really all there is to it. You know, we're a lot like Moses. Think about how Moses did it first. Are you paying attention? Are you paying attention? The world teaches us to keep our heads down and mind our own business. It's not what God says to do. God says to look up, look around, see where hurting people are, see where God is doing something, and then take the opportunity to join into it if you feel that God's leading you to do that. It's not, you don't have to have burning bushes or flashes of lightning from the sky or, you know, whatever. You can feel it in your heart. God wants me to be a part of that. And then follow that nudge. Second, are you being a shepherd? Are you doing the little things well? Other people may praise the accomplishments that get you recognition. We live in a, in a town and in a, in, a, in, a, in a nation that teaches people to discard anything they don't get credit for. Right? God's not into that. He's not looking for people who are into that. He's looking for the humble. He's looking for people with work ethic, people who are industrious, who will do the small things to make a better world around them. He's looking for the quiet strength that you exhibit when you do just the basic everyday things of life in honor to him. And finally, do you trust God enough to be comfortable with the unknown? You know, ask your questions. It's fine to ask. God doesn't mind. But eventually you run out of questions and you're asking questions because... You're just asking questions. So when the questions run out, choose to trust God. When there are no more answers to give, choose to trust God. And then do what you feel God is calling you to do. I want to share one more illustration with you, and I hope this sticks with you. It stuck with me the first time I heard it, and it may help you. It's by a guy named Major N. Thomas. He wrote a book called The Saving Life of Christ. Y'all ever heard of that book? Anyone ever heard of it? Okay, it's a weird book. And it's like this dude, he's not a preacher. He wrote this amazing book about the inner life of dealing with God and, and how to build a relationship with him. And he gave this idea. He said, God, relationship with God is reciprocal. It's where you give part of who you are, God gives who is part of him, and jointly together, just like Moses in this passage. Hey, Moses, do you want to do this? I don't know, God, why don't you tell me some more about it? Well, there is some danger, but here's the deal. Well, what if we do this, this, and this? Okay, that sounds good. All right, off we go, <laughs> right? That's kind of where Moses is. And relationally speaking, that's how God works with us today. And he, uh, Madrian Thomas said that, the, um, that our life is like a glove, that we're all like gloves, like that you would put on latex gloves, something like that, or a glove. If you have a glove and you do something with it, you put it on the counter... And you say, all right, scamper off to do what you're supposed to do. (laughs) Does that work? No, people think you're crazy. That's what happens, right? Doesn't make any sense. So your relationship with God is different. You're the glove. God is the hand inside the glove. Your job is not to come up with the plan. 
In most ways, it's not even to empower you to do the plan. It's to become a willing vessel to do that work. So when the glove is filled with the hand of God, good things happen. And that's the part you need to understand. You don't have to do everything when you're called by God to do something. You just have to do what God asks you to do. And then allow yourself to be filled with the Spirit of God to carry that out. And not only will God ask you to do something, He'll help you do it. He'll empower you to do it. And that's what the gospel is all about. And that's the story of Moses. 